so I got some material I'm going to work through. We're going to finish, or not finish, we're on our fourth week out of five, talking through the last words of Jesus that he spoke on the cross. So I'll, uh, I'm going to work through a phrase this, uh, this week and one more next week. And remember that these phrases, and, and one, of the, one of the more important things to remember is that there's not a lot of, of what Jesus said from the cross on record, and that's probably because it was very difficult. History tells us that it was very difficult to breathe and speak uh, while, while people were being executed on the cross. So Jesus probably just didn't say much because it would have been very hard. And so you think about in terms of significance, these are things that Jesus felt, man, this really needs to be said. So we're going to work through this uh, phrase today and do one more phrase next week. Now, if you're newer to Polaris, this is, this is like some pretty heady stuff. This, there's lots of layers to these things, and, and you sort of uh, peel the layers away and it brings more significance. So let me give you an example. If I were to say to you something like, there's finally a baker in kitchen that can make some enjoyable brownies around here. Now, chances are good, especially if you know that we're in Cleveland, you're going to put some things together. And what am I really talking about? I'm talking about the Browns. And there's Baker Mayfield, and there's Coach Kitchens, and, and you know the Brownies is the team. So, so there's finally a Baker and Kitchen that can produce some enjoyable brownies. All right, now that's a, a statement that speaks to a sport, that speaks to um, a, a lack of enjoyable product for the past 40 years. Um, it speaks to specific players and coaches, but you have to kind of know what's going on in the community to get that. A thousand years from now, 2,000 years from now, if you were to uncover that statement, you would probably think I was talking about making desserts. And, you know, having the right people and tools to make a good dessert. But when you can unpack more, you know that it's more of a loaded statement. So when we look at this stuff from the word, when when we look at these words of Jesus on the cross, what we need to do is sort of get our brains around uh, culture from Jesus' day and time, kind of the collective consciousness of Jesus' day and time. And then we can uh, see that these are actually like explosive, loaded phrases and words that Jesus speaks from the cross. So that's what we're going to try to do. And and I I hope, you know, this is one of those things that I think, whatever level you're on, uh, my goal is for you to pull some things. Because I'm not, I love Bible study, and I, this is the kind of stuff that I get really excited about, but I'm kind of like nerdy like that with the Bible. Um, I know that for a lot of people, it's like, okay, but my wife hates me, so who cares? What, so what, you know? Like, how does this stuff apply? So I'm hoping that as you hang with this, we can get to some stuff that makes a real impact on your life, because that's the goal of all this. So, okay, what I want to do is I'm going to give you the Jesus phrase, and I'm going to talk about Jewish history. I'm going to talk about the Jewish hope at the time of Jesus. I want to talk about how we can relate with Uh, what the Jews were thinking at those times. And then I want to talk about the significance of Jesus' phrase for your life. So um, this is a basic survey through uh, a major theme in Scripture, the cultural expectation of the Jewish faith that um, was sort of underlying the Gospels in the Bible. Okay, So when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the life and teachings of Jesus, there's this 
underlying theme, and that's what we're kind of talking about this morning. All right, so I'm going to read to you. This is the phrase that we're going to talk about. <clears throat> Man, this is such, this, this paint is so flat that I can't get my fingernails underneath the, my pages. So anyway, okay, John 19, here we go. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch. Keep that in mind. Very odd little detail, isn't it? And here's the kind of branch that it was on. A hyssop branch. And held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, so Jesus drinks the wine, he said, it is finished. After Jesus drank the wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, I think those are way more than just sort of minor details. I think the, you're going to see that the, the, um, the sequence has a lot of meaning. There's a hyssop branch filled with red stuff. Jesus drinks some wine and says, it is finished. So, I think you're going to see this is totally like a baker in the kitchen making brownies kind of ancient statement. Okay, so here we go. Here's a brief survey of Jewish history. Jesus was a Jew living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. The Jews were still in a land that God had promised them. They were in the promised land, uh, but they were controlled by Rome. And this was a disgrace to them. They longed for the same sort of liberation that they had experienced in the past. Their entire calendar was built around the hope that God would do something like he had done to start their nation centuries prior. It all began in the book of Exodus. They were an Exodus-centric nation of people. The Jews, at the time of Jesus, were fixated on the Exodus, which had happened in the book of Exodus 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. That's very important when you read the Gospels. The Jews were an Exodus-centric people. They were obsessed at what God had done with the original Exodus 1,500 years prior. Now, the Israelites, 1,500 years before the time of Jesus in the book of Exodus, they were in slavery for 400 years. It's literally all they knew. It was ingrained in them. They were slaves through and through. God eventually sent Moses in the book of Exodus. And through Moses' leadership, God did many mighty works that eventually led uh, to the most forceful work of all, or plague of all. Moses told the oppressive Pharaoh, who had all these Israelite slaves, that God was about to kill the firstborn of every living thing in the land of Egypt if he would not let the Israelites go. So they're enslaved, they're in Egypt, they have no hope, and God says, if you don't let them go, I will kill the firstborn of every living thing. Now, Pharaoh refused, so this engaged the final plague. Moses tells the Israelites, in order to protect their families from death, they must observe what would be called the Passover. If they observe this ritual, the Passover, 
God would pass over, that's the name Passover, God would pass over the four walls of their house. Anything living in the four walls of their house, if they do this ritual, would be passed over by death. The Passover ritual would mark the beginning of the Exodus, which would lead to a covenant or a promise with God, and it would ultimately lead to new land. So there was this rhythm. Passover, Exodus, covenant or promise, new way of life or new place of life. So Passover ritual, then Exodus or exiting away from slavery. Passover, Exodus, new promise, new way of life. That was sort of baked into the DNA of the Israelites at the time of Jesus and still to this day. Now here's the actual biblical description of the Passover uh, from Exodus 12. Um, And I've spliced this together for time, but I haven't taken any creative liberties, okay? So here we go. The Lord said to Moses, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's household. A lamb for a household. In other words, every clan, like for every patriarch and all the trickle down on the family tree, one lamb per sort of clan or household. Your lamb will be without blemish, without blemish. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So the sun goes down and the lamb's killed. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, this shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Now look at what they did to implement this specifically, like the specific details of how they did this Passover feast, which they would do every year as a reenactment. They did it once to actually save, and then they would remember it every year and reenact this. This is what they did specifically. And know that every Jew reading the Gospels, like every Jew that read John, they would have had this memorized. Like you and I know that, you know, Paul Revere, George Washington, we fought Britain, like we know the basic details of the Revolutionary War. Jews would have known the details of the original Passover, and would have been very familiar with its yearly reenactment, okay? Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb, taking a bunch of, or a bunch of branches of hyssop, take hyssop tree branches and dip them in blood that's in the basin, and touch the lintel 
of the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. So they're going to, like that might be your like first explosive little detail from the crucifixion story. For centuries, for centuries before the time of Jesus, every year during this Passover feast, every year on Passover, they would take hyssop specifically, hyssop branches, and they would get, dip it and they would lift it. That was a part of them remembering the salvation was a hyssop branch being dipped and lifted. And John tells us at the cross, there's a hyssop branch that is lifted with red stuff, wine, up as this saving act is going on. So it just it, it's amazing to me that 1,500 years before the time of Jesus, on the exact time that this was going to happen, 1,500 years later at the cross, there's the, the exact branch being dipped and lifted, dipped and raised, dipped and raised. And then so right then, the Passover at the time of Jesus, which is when Jesus was killed, there's that same action happening. Just incredible symbolism. Like God's like sort of a, hey man, I want you to know I see this coming. I see this coming, and this is what it's going to look like, okay? So you couldn't help but be called back to that as you read that account. Next, notice that God said that this was to be done every year as a remembrance of what was done. This is a reenactment that continued. This Passover feast is a reenactment. Now, over the years, Israel found themselves... um, like the focus of the Passover shifted. So they would have this meal, and it used to be in the early years, uh, they would remember their deliverance from Egypt. Wow, we're free now. Wow, we're in the promised land. Look what God done. But their disobedience began to distance them from God. And at times they were even exiled out of their land. And before long now, they're back in their land, but they're under Roman oppression. They don't have any rights. And so the Passover meaning or significance shifted. And this is very historical. It's verifiable. They began to think in terms of a new Moses who would bring a new Passover and a new exodus and a new promise and a new land or a new way of life. And through their Passover ritual, when they yearly celebrated that meal, they began to talk in terms of a new Passover and a new Exodus. And like like the symbolism changed, and they were looking now for God to do this same kind of a thing over again. So at the time of Jesus, the collective consciousness of the Jews was very much like, God, where's our new Exodus Where's our new deliverance? Where's our new promise? Where's our new promised land? Please, God, bring us this. So so the the Passover meal changed. It evolved with some new ideas of a new way of doing this. So that was there, and you need to know that. So by the time of Jesus, the Passover ritual was central to the Jewish calendar. Their emphasis would have been on deliverance from Rome— and a reestablishment of a people of promise. They wanted God to deliver them. Now here's what that Passover meal looked like. Here's a survey. So, during the evening, after their Passover lamb was sacrificed, and incidentally I found this, this is fascinating to me. First century Christians 
talk about what it was like in Jerusalem at the time of Passover. And about 200,000 lambs were slaughtered or sacrificed every year at Passover, representing 200,000 like patriarchal family units. The lambs needed to be skinned because they were to be cooked because ultimately you ate the lamb as a part of the Passover. So to skin the lamb, uh, they would drive a, a stake crossways shoulder to shoulder on this lamb so that it could be hung and then skinned. And then because the lamb, remember what he said to do to the lamb, how to cook the lamb? You roasted it. And therefore, it needed to, like, to be skewered. So they would put another rod lengthwise so that it could be hung over a fire. So you had these lambs. And again, this is, this is historically verifiable. You had these lambs for hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. You had the hundreds of thousands of lambs essentially on crosses carried about the city. The Passover lambs were placed on a cross year after year after year, leading up to the time of Jesus. I find that symbolism absolutely fascinating to see as God set up this incredible moment. So, um, the meal began at evening, and there was a first cup mixed with uh, wine mixed with water, and it was sort of the introductory cup. And then there was a second cup. It was called the proclamation cup, when the story of Exodus was retold. The deliverance was celebrated with the second cup. So the first cup, a second cup, and then there was the actual meal. The eating of the lamb and the bread and all of the elements had, uh, that were eaten and had, had significance attached to them, followed by a third cup. Now most scholars agree that this was the cup uh, in the Gospels that became the Eucharist or communion or the Lord's Supper what we celebrate every week here at Polaris. And then, after the third cup, there was a hymn that was sung in the Passover celebration throughout the centuries leading up to the one Jesus celebrated. The hymn would have probably been 115 or 118. And then there was a fourth cup, a final cup, that ended the Passover meal. Every single Jew at the time of Jesus, every first reader of the Gospels would have been very familiar. First cup, second cup, meal, third cup, hymn, fourth cup that ended the Passover. They would have known it like we know the seasons, okay? Let's go to the accounts of the last time Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his followers so that you can appreciate some of the language now. Now, as they were eating, and we know that they, it says they were eating the Passover meal. It was nighttime, and they were eating the Passover meal. So this is the food part. Jesus took bread. So now we're in the food part. They would have known cup, cup, food. So now they're at the food part. Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. So knowing the background, every Jewish reader would have known there's a first cup, there's a second cup. Now they're in the actual meal, but also we see Jesus changing the meaning of the Passover. Now, 
Do you think that when they were wanting centuries for someone to come, a new Moses to come and give a new Passover and a new Exodus, that this is piquing their curiosity? Wait a minute. Here's Jesus changing the significance of the elements of the Passover. Now the bread symbolizes his broken body that he's giving. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So here we there's food, then there's a cup, then there's a hymn. So they know exactly what's going on. There's food, there's a cup, there's a hymn. So that's the, the food, then the third cup, then a hymn. And Jesus is giving new meaning to this new Passover, one of which is a new promise. Remember what we said? There was a Passover, then an exodus, then a promise. Now Jesus is giving a new promise, a new covenant of forgiveness through his blood. So Jesus is reshaping the Passover, but there's a really strange detail missing here. And it would have triggered every ancient Jewish listener. Where's the fourth cup? It's like there's food, then a cup, then a hymn, and then they go out for a bit of prayer. Where, where's, where's the fourth cup? That would have been in the mind of every ancient hearer of this story. Now it gets more interesting. Because while they're wondering, wait a minute, where's the fourth cup? We see Matthew giving an allusion to a cup. Verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup, like they're waiting for that fourth cup, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So what's this fourth cup that Jesus is dreading? The Passover's being reshaped, just like they wanted. A new Passover leading to a new exodus is being formed. There was a new promise laid out through the shedding of Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of sins. What's the fourth cup? Now the whole thing is suspended because moments later Judas comes on the scene and Jesus is arrested and ripped from the garden. The fourth cup has not yet been drank. It's been alluded to but what's the deal? Now, this story has been in circulation for years before John writes his gospel. John, incidentally, was the only disciple there at the feet of Jesus at the cross, the only one of the 12 disciples, I should say, while Jesus hung there. John brings closure to this retelling of the Passover. John tells us about the fourth cup. So let's go back to what we read earlier. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst, like he's asking for wine. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, John making obvious allusions to the Passover ritual, and he held it to his mouth. <coughs> and when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So do you see what John did there? 
He refers to a hyssop branch, calls us back to Passover and Passover celebration, where for years Jews raised a hyssop branch to remember their deliverance. And then Jesus drinks the wine, the fourth cup of the Passover, the suffering of Jesus. Having reshaped the Passover, Jesus declared, it is finished. The Passover is finished. The second Passover has been given. The new promise has been declared. The new exodus has, been, has begun. Now, so what? Right? I mean, that can be fascinating for you Bible scholars out there. Neat illusions and symbolism, but so what, really? You hate your job. You're in debt to your eyeballs. So, so what? I think there's tremendous significance in what that means for you in your situation today. The Israelites were in a hopeless situation. They longed to believe that they still mattered to God. They have no rights and no respect. They wondered if God still loved them. Most people were just nobodies in a world of religious and political elites. They dreamed of a day when God would just show up in their life. Maybe you can relate with that. Does God still love you? Is there still purpose to any of this? Is there still hope? Jesus was to the point of asking God, is there anything we can do to not have this fourth cup? Is there anything we can do to to recreate this Passover a different way? But, But you know what? I am so committed to your will for these people that I will go through even this fourth cup on to completion. That's what I take from this. Jesus did what it took to finish the job. The new Passover was Jesus' sacrifice. The new exodus was leaving sin behind, leaving the idea that somehow we have to earn our way with God behind because God was going to pay that price. The new promise is that it's all been done for us. And the new life is a path of sacrificial love to step into, to stop living for the things that are weighing us down and accept this new freedom and new path of sacrificial love and and understand that we're also on this exodus from this world to the new world that God is creating and we're all invited on that journey. So when we look at our lives and some of the helpless situations we find ourselves in, this whole thing is a story that God invites us to leave this way of life, to leave the things that burden us, to accept his love for us, to accept the freedom we have through forgiveness, through this new Passover lamb, and journey with God and with each other to a new world that God is shaping for us that we will one day walk into. That's the promise we have. And then Jesus invites his followers to sit at communion, and we celebrate it every week at Polaris because we need to be called back regular. The elements call us back to sacrificial love, right? Juice that represents his blood and bread that represents his broken body, and we're called back to his love for us. We're called back to this exodus, this life of sacrificial love, and it's a reminder that Jesus, knowing full well where it was headed, did everything it took to finish the job because you were worth it to him. You are worth it to God. 
So right now we're going to take communion together. We're going to close out with communion. And um, if you've never done that before, you just we're going to pass some trays. And if you believe this and want to be a part of it and want to celebrate what you just heard, you can just take a piece of bread as it's passed. And Jesus said, this is my body. This is my body given for you. And then take a cup and you can either drink it right away and return it to the tray or you can drink it when you're ready and put it in the cup holder in the pew. Jesus said, this is the new promise that the world has been waiting for. That there is forgiveness of sins because I, the new Passover lambs, the new Passover lamb, am paying the price for sin. And it's a reminder of that pathway of sacrificial love and an invitation to step into that new kind of, of exodus leaving the past and accepting forgiveness and accepting a life of sacrificial love that leads us to the new promised land. If you want to do that, now's the time. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for this new Passover, this new exodus, this new promise and new direction to a new promised land. We get to be a part of that and we're thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.